It's really good to be with you guys. If you're new here to First Church, if you can tell, uh, this is not the church you go to to get a 20-minute worship set and then a nice, clean, polished message, and you just hide from the Holy Spirit. doesn't matter where you sit here. You're going to get touched by God. It's just the way it is. We're not here to entertain. It's not, it's not like uh, Russell Crowe and the Gladiator. Are you not yet entertained? <laughs> We don't care if you're entertained or not. This is not what we're here to do. We're here to encounter God. Yeah, this is the, this is the reason why the, the American church has gotten so weak is because we're so focused on being entertained because the moment we're, we're not entertained is the moment we're offended. And then when we're offended because there's so many churches in every direction, we can just go find another church to be entertained at. Right? So we're not doing that here. It's okay to be offended. You're welcome to be offended. Nobody here is, is, is upset that you're offended. And it's not necessarily a problem that you become offended. Offense is actually a tool underneath the supervision and submission of the Holy Spirit. Did you know that? Offense in submission to the Holy Spirit acts as like a, uh, a, a radar or a spotlight for things that are in you that maybe you've not allowed to come out of you yet. Okay, so it's, it's not a bad thing to get offended. In fact, if you're doing family and church correctly, you should be getting offended every so often, right? Yeah, that's, that's why Thanksgiving is so hard, right? You, you, you choose not to be around those people all year long, and then you get around them, and then you're reminded why you don't get around them so much, because you're getting offended every time you, you eat with them. The difference between Thanksgiving and church is that although we may get offended at one another, we build an allowance for each other, as Paul commands, as Jesus commands through Paul. We build an allowance for each other. And then as we build an allowance, the Lord does something supernatural with the offense. He covers it with his love. And then as he covers it with his love, it actually transforms us. What was once then used as a sharpened pole to impale us becomes the pole we impale the enemy upon in our lives. Okay? So it, it's, this is not built for you to feel good all the time. Okay? This is not Disney World. It's not Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> It'd be more fun if it was probably. This is life-giving. In order for you to receive life, we have to kill your death. Okay? Kill your death. Is that, does that work? Kill your death. <laughs> All right, let's pray. Jesus, thank you for today. Thank you for the worship. Thank you for the healing. Thank you for the breakthrough. Thank you for the deliverance. Thank you for what you've done in this place, God. We ask now that we would worship you with your word, Jesus, that you would meet us. You would mark us, you would transform us, that you would pour out your spirit upon us. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so uh, we've been reading about David in the Life Journal and talking about his process. We're going to spend a little more time focusing on David. Again, I just love the story of David uh, in the Old Testament, First, Second Samuel. It's just fun to read. It's just like good reading, right? And again, I say this a lot, but if Hollywood ever got some sense, they would take these books and make them into to like a, a series of movies. They would be violent, bloody, exciting, 
A lot of fun to watch, right? I don't know how you would make David slinging a rock at a giant's head PG, but it would be cool. It would be really cool. It's just really good to read these and, and to remember to remember what God did and what he established and what he's promised to his people. Because here's the thing. He's promised us these things, but we have to receive them. We have to say yes to them. And this week, as, as uh, I was preparing for this message uh, and listening to, to Mike Graff last weekend, just a powerful word, uh, I, I kept hearing the phrase boundary lines. Boundary lines. And I felt like the Lord was saying that he wants to use his church to reestablish his boundary lines in our nation. And I feel like the next outpouring, which we're like in the beginning of, and I say this unashamedly, this is the beginning of, of an outpouring and revival. Revival is here right now. You understand that? It's been here for 2,000 years since the first Pentecost. Okay? It's, it's just here. We step into it in part by what we, we recognize is available, but it's already here. Okay? There's an awakening happening where people are awakening to the reality that revival is available. And we're in the beginning stages of that. We're like, I was at Dollywood yesterday on, on the roller coasters. I did the, uh, what's the eagle one? Yeah, that's crazy. It makes your belly feel like it's in your throat. Terrible. But super fun. But as you're going, as you're going up the hill... What are you doing? What are you doing? You're anticipating what's to come. That's where we are right now. We're going up the hill, anticipating what God's about to do next, right? And this is what I feel like God is going to do next. He, he's going to redefine the boundary lines in our nation by awakening the church to the reality that we first have to redefine the boundary lines, not redefine, reestablish the boundary lines within ourselves, okay? I believe God wants to reestablish his boundary lines, his version of righteousness within his church so that we can carry and steward what he wants to pour out in the world, right? He, can't, he can do it, but he, he is gracious enough not to pour something out that we won't be willing to carry on his behalf, okay? He's a gracious God. He... he you know, it's, it's hard for me to say he's a gentleman because he does some pretty ostentatious things at times. He flips tables. He, uh, he calls religious people dead, empty tombs, right? He does some pretty outrageous things, but he's good and he's gracious, so he'll wait for us to get it. But it, we're not on our time. We're on his time, right? We're on his time. It's his ability. It's his graciousness. It's his desire to do this. He's awakening his church so that we can step into it and partner with him and bringing him the glory he deserves. So we've got to get serious about allowing him to reestablish the boundary lines in our hearts. Allow him to reestablish righteousness, not your version of righteousness, not what the world calls social justice or, or whatever the world says is right and wrong. We're not talking about that. We're talking about knowing who God is, seeing him and knowing he is the Almighty, having a, a cerebral understanding of who he is, and then allowing him to mark our hearts with his righteousness. Because as he marks us, we then can mark the world. But if we're unwilling to allow him to change and transform us first, we are useless to an already dying world. 
So important to understand this, that if you want to see the world be changed for Jesus, you need to be radical about him changing you first. You have to understand this. If you want to see revival sweep through your family, you need to be passionate about his heart sweeping through you, about his fire sweeping through you. You don't have to worry about all the things on the peripheral. You just need to get serious about the condition of your own heart. This is the, this is the great trick the enemy plays. He, he makes us believe that we can exchange external things without first dealing with eternal things, internal things. That if we just put our hands to many different things and stay busy, that we'll fix the problems, but that's a lie. You first need to, to get rid of the compromise in your heart. You first need to get rid of the compromise in your heart. You need to get rid of the places where you've allowed the enemy to make agreements with you. And then once you do that, the strength and the grace of God Almighty will move through your life and change things on your behalf in ways that you could not do that on your own. But the first step is to get right before God. Is to walk with a pure heart. And I want you to understand that pure heart is a heavy term. It makes you think, man, I need to be perfect. You don't need to be perfect. That's not what a pure heart is. Walking in purity of heart is being honest with yourself. Is being honest with yourself and walking with intention before God. It's not stuffing it down and pretending like everything's okay and acting like you don't have any problems so you need to go fix everybody else's problems. That's religion. That's the religion that has messed your life up this far. Walking in purity of heart is saying, Lord, I am the first one who needs to be touched by your refining fire. Start with me. Change my life so that I can be useful for your kingdom. That's purity of heart. That's taking responsibility for yourself before God so he can take responsibility for you. You can't blame things on God that you're not willing to confront within yourself. You've been walking around with things saying, God, please heal this, please fix this, but you won't let go of it. He can't do what you won't let him do. Holiness is not an idea. It's not a philosophy. It's, it's a lifestyle. You have to go to war for this. You can't be passive. There is no room for passivity in living a holy life. There's not a single person in here who has fallen, who has not fallen short. We're all broken. We're all a mess. We're all, we all stink of our sin. But that doesn't matter. What matters is that Jesus has paid the price. Now it's your turn to pick up your cross and begin to fight for what he paid for you to live in. This is, how the, this is how the church stewards awakening in the world. This is it. If we won't do this simple thing, if we won't return to our first love, if we won't be pure in heart before the Lord and each other, we're just fooling ourselves. It's just a show. We're just showing up on Sunday and Wednesday night pretending, but nothing is going to change. This is it. Walk in purity before God. Allow him to reestablish his boundary lines in your life, and he will make straight the path before you. <laughs> Think of it like this. I'm at the soccer fields probably four to five times a week right now, just like soccer every night in my family. What, what's, a, what's the shape of a soccer field? 
It's a rectangle, right? It's a giant rectangle. It's about all the geometry I can do right there. It's a giant rectangle. What's on either side? A goal. The, the object of the game is to get your ball, what you possess, down to the goal. Now, if you've never played or seen soccer, if you just were to go out there and try to do it, what would you try to do? You, knowing me, I'd probably try to, what would be cheat? I'd probably try to go outside the lines. I would probably find the quickest way for me to get from my side to that side without anybody getting the ball for me by doing whatever I felt like I needed to do to get what I needed to get done, done. But how does soccer work? Well, there's officials, and they've painted lines into the fields. What happens when you cross the ball over one of those lines? You lose it. Its possession is taken from you. It might feel like you might have an advantage. It might feel like something that would make sense to do. It may seem like it's the best option or out. But once you cross the boundary line, no matter how you feel, what's been given to you is then taken away and given to your enemy. Do you understand why this is so important? It doesn't matter what you think about yourself. It doesn't matter how you feel like you're, you're doing in life. You might, think like, you might feel like you're winning or having an advantage if you're not walking within the boundary lines that God has placed on your life and in this world. You've handed over what you've been given to possess to your enemy. Is this too much? It's just the truth. You may feel like you've got an advantage to the goal, but the truth is you're anywhere but going in the right direction. Having an advantage outside what has been set as right and wrong gives you no advantage. It actually just brings you into defeat. <laughs> See, you can't say, God, I, I love you, I follow you, and then live your own way. He won't prosper you like that. That's for the world. The world can do that all the way to hell. They can. They can say, God, I'm going to, or they can say, I'm going to do things my way, what feels good to me, what makes me feel like I'm winning. And they can win that way because that leads them to hell. The enemy's happy for them to be successful on their way into damnation. But God loves you too much. He loves the people around you too much. He's not going to let you break his boundary lines to your own defeat. He won't prosper you that way. He won't make your road straight. He won't give you the strength you need to accomplish what you've been called to do. You have to stay within the boundary lines. You have to understand who he is. Number one, it's God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He's called you to great things. He's given you an anointing and a mission and a capacity to bring his kingdom onto the earth. But it doesn't work your way. It works his way. So that's where we pick up in David's story. He's, he's been running around in the wilderness. He's had two opportunities to kill Saul. And for those who don't know, Saul is the guy uh, whose job he's about to take. He's, he's been called to be king by God of Israel. Only problem is Saul is king and Saul doesn't like him. So now Saul is hunting him, but David's been given two opportunities to kill Saul. And David does the right thing. He, he honors God by not killing Saul. He's actually, up until this point, he's done a pretty good job of walking within the boundary lines that God has set for him in his call. But then something happens to him. He gets, he gets a little bit tired, I think. 
1 Samuel, verse 27. First Samuel, verse 27. Let's read it together. Or sorry, First Samuel chapter 27, verse 1 through 7. You guys are like, what is wrong with this guy? It's all the Dollywood yesterday. First Samuel chapter 27, verses 1 through 7. David's finally getting tired. He's wore out. Although the Lord has, it says in the scripture that the Lord has covered David from being found by Saul. He's come to a place where he just doesn't know what to do anymore. And it says this in verse 1. But David kept thinking to himself, someday Saul is going to get me. The best thing I can do is escape to the Philistines. Then, then Saul will stop hunting for me in Israelite territory and I will finally be safe. So David took 600 men and went over and joined Achish, son of Moak, the king of Gath. David and his men and their family settled there with Achish at Gath. David brought his two wives along with him, Ananoam from Jezreel and Abigail, Nabal's widow from Carmel. Word soon reached Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he stopped hunting for him. One day David said to Achish, If it's all right with you, we would rather live in one of the country towns instead of here in the royal city. So Achish gave him the town of Ziklag which still belongs to the kings of Judah to this day. And they live there among the Philistines for a year and four months. So David is tired. He doesn't want to run anymore. He's, he's come to the end of himself. And he has, uh, he has a great idea. Is it a great, it's not a great idea. It's a terrible idea. Sorry. He decides he's going to go hide in Philistine country. Let me ask you a question. Who, who led him to King Achish, Achish and then Ziklag? Did, did Saul lead him there? Did God lead him there? Certainly not. Fear led him there. In particular, the fear of what? The fear of man. So David ends up at Ziklag because of the fear of man. And what David ends up doing is he, he begins to raid the, the border towns around Ziklag. And then he reports back to King Achish. And he says, you know what, Achish, we had a great day. We raided the towns of Israel. And here's some plunder. Help yourself. And so Achish begins to fall in love with David, uh, not romantically, but as like a, a, a great servant. And he's, he, he thinks highly of David. And David is beginning to build for himself a kingdom outside of where God has called him to be king. Do you understand? David is led by the fear of man to build what he's called to build, but outside the boundary lines that he's called to build it in. This is not going to work out good for David. So time goes on, and the kings of the Philistines go out to battle against the king of Israel, Saul. And David tries to go to battle with them. And the kings of Israel, they go, wait a second, isn't that the guy who killed Goliath? We don't want him fighting with us. Achish tries to, to stand up for him, tries to say, you know what? No, he's totally changed. He's been raiding Israelites, not knowing that he's been raiding Philistines. And, you know, just, just trust him on this one. It's going to work out good for us. The other kings are like, no way. That's the guy who killed Goliath. We're not going to let him fight with us. Send him home immediately. So King Achish goes to David and says, David, I'm sorry, buddy, but these guys don't want to fight with you. For some reason, they're still bitter about that thing you did to our, our uh, champion. Sends him home. And then what happens when David gets home to his village that he's built, his kingdom that he's built in Ziklag three days later? Does anybody remember? 
the Amalekites showed up, the third party in the dance. The Amalekites show up and they completely destroy Ziklag. Here, we'll read that together just so we can make it official. 1 Samuel 30, verse 1. 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 1. Three days later, when David and his men arrived home in their, at the, their town of Ziklag, they found the Amalekites had made a raid into Negev and Ziklag and had crushed Ziklag and burned it to the ground. They had carried women and children and, every, and everything else, but without killing anyone. When David and his men saw the ruins and realized what had happened to their families, David's two wives, and Ahinoam from Jezreel and Abigail, the widow widow of Nabal from Carmel were among the, those captured were among those captured David was now in great danger because all of his men were very bitter about losing their sons and daughters and they began talk they began talk of stoning him but David found strength in the Lord his God so just to recap the story very quickly David who got tired then was led by the fear of man into a foreign country to do what he felt he was called to do, but not in God's way, his own way, had found that once he crossed that boundary line, everything he possessed and built for himself had been stripped away. Just like that soccer field, right? <laughs> everything that he thought he was doing to benefit himself, take advantage for himself, do on his own behalf, in his own strength, in his own wisdom, was gone in a matter of three days. See, this is how it works. When you don't walk where you're called to walk, when you don't walk in the way you're called to walk, in the places you're called to be, when you try to do it in your own way, in your own strength, when you try to make God's way your way, you hand over what you possess and you're called to steward back to the enemy. See, the church is in a ziklag moment. We've gotten so used to making this about what we like, what feels good to us, what makes sense in our own minds, what makes our own hearts feel at ease. And we found ourselves in ziklag and everything is at stake. Just like the men wanted to stone David, the world wants to kill the church. And it's not because the church has been too radical or too, or too uh, passionate about Jesus. It's because we've got comfortable living outside the boundary lines that God has called the church to live in. But David has a redemptive moment, doesn't he? It says he found strength. So up until this point, he's not consulted the Lord at all. And look where he's ended. But at this moment, he finds strength in the Lord his God. What does that mean? It's not too late. It's not too late. David rediscovers the gift and the lifestyle that activates victory in our life. It's very simple. It's not hard to do, but it requires purity of heart. It's called repentance. <laughs> See, repentance is a gift from God because we're just too stubborn to walk in his grace. David rediscovers the gift of repentance and turns from his own will back into God's will. And it says that he gets his priests to bring the ephod out and they ask God, should we go chase after these Amalekites who've just took us for everything we have? And what does the Lord say to him? Yes, go after them. This is 1 Samuel 30, verse 8. Yes, go after them. You will surely recover everything that, that was taken from you. So David and his men start a, a, a mad dash towards the brook of Bes 
Thanks, bro. Mad dash towards the brook of Bazor to chase after the Amalekites to get a little bit of help from an Egyptian slave. They, they finally catch up with the Amalekites, and it says they slaughter them from day until night. They totally wipe them out. They get all their wives back. They get their, their, uh, their children back. They get their sheep and their goats back. They get everything back plus some. Because when you learn to walk in repentance, God takes you further than you could take yourself. He takes what the enemy meant to kill you with and actually uses it to restore you, number one, but then to build you beyond your own capacity. See, repentance is not just learning to say that you're wrong. It's supernatural. Come on, you've got to understand that when you are repenting, you are activating God's strength to come back into your life. This is why the, the enemy is so set on keeping you prideful and oblivious to your sin. Because once you repent, you come back into God's grace. His strength then fills you again, and he pushes you beyond where you can take yourself. You've got to understand that grace is not a philosophy. It's a current. It's a power moving from God's heart, activated by mercy, to enable your life to go beyond what you could do for yourself. It's moving. It's forever. It's like, it's like a river. Test one, two. One, two, three. Can everybody hear me okay? Okay. Thanks to our sponsors from Ovaltine. <laughs> uh, what was I talking about? Grace. Grace is a constant stream that pushes you where you're called to be. You're not good enough to do it on your own. I'm so sorry. You can look in the mirror and tell yourself how beautiful you are, all you want that's healthy, and it's a good thing to do, but you're not strong enough to take yourself where God has called you to be. You need grace to actually activate and move your life in a way that's beyond your own strength. Here's the problem, is that even though God's grace is moving towards us, we're too stubborn. We like to jump out of it at times. And we like to chase things that feel good to ourselves, that make sense in our own minds and our own wisdom, but actually negate our ability to stay moving in God's grace for our life. How do we get back into that grace? Simple. Just said it. It's a discipline. We repent. We turn. And then we move down the river back to where God has called us to be. So David repents. He goes and he chases down those Amalekites, wipes them all out. Again, this would be a great scene in a movie. He gets all of his stuff back, and then some. And then the next thing he does is he places him back, himself back inside the boundary lines of where God has called him to be. He pays tribute to all the tribes of Judah and honors the call that God has put on his life to be the king and ruler over Israel. Amen. Let me, let me read one more scripture to you. Hopefully this will wake you up. The fear of man will cause you to do things in the name of God that God has never called you to do. Okay? The fear of man will cause you to do outwardly good-looking things in the name of God that Jesus never led you to do. Do you understand that? 
Why? Because the fear of man plays off the, the desires of your flesh. It's, it's self-worship. It's self-exaltation. When, when I bow down to the fear of man, I am exalting my flesh. When I'm exalting my flesh, what am I doing? I'm forgetting who God is. How do we break the fear of man off of us? So simple. The fear of God. When we repent from the fear of man, we turn back into the fear of God. What's the fear of God? Is it that we're afraid of who God is? No. We just now rightly see and understand who he is and who we are called to be in him. All sin, all sin is a result of forgetting who God is and who he's called you to be. Okay, go with me to, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. I'm going to close with this. This is Paul writing to the Corinthian church who had ample opportunity to learn the gift of repentance. Just like us. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 through 20. Paul writing, Run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You don't belong to yourself. For God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. I know this seems like I'm going in a whole different direction, but it connects, I promise. I'll make, I'll make it merge somehow, some way. So the first point we need to learn is what we were created for. We were created to be containers. What are we containing? The presence of God, the Holy Spirit, God dwelling within us. That means that we can't be defined by how we feel or what we think we need. We're defined by what we're called to carry. Right? You can't call a Pepsi 2 liter, a Mountain Dew 2 liter, just doesn't work. Because Pepsi is, is what goes in there. You, you can't call yourself sexually broken when you're not created to be sexually broken. Holy Spirit was, you were designed to carry Holy Spirit. The difference between sexual sin and most other sins is that sexual sin feels so gratifying and rewarding to self, doesn't it? Let me just cut through it. Every person in this room is born into this world with sexual brokenness. Your mima was, your peepaw was, granny, grandpa, all of them. They're all born into the world with sexual brokenness. I'm, I'm just telling you the truth. Why is sexual brokenness uh, so easy to ensnare us? Because it feels so gratifying to who we are. But it's not who we are. It's our flesh. It's the container. It scratches the itch on the container, but it does nothing for who we are created to be. So even though you're born into sexual brokenness, you have to take that brokenness and submit it to the boundary lines God has created for you. What are the boundary lines for sexual brokenness? Marriage. Simple, guys. Marriage. He's created marriage to be a container for what was once something that ruled and reigned over us in rebellion, now is glorifying to him, it's that pole being sharpened again, is glorified to him within the boundaries of the container he's built for it, which is marriage. Okay? What does that mean? I know it feels, it feels like I'm going five different ways. It means that you cannot be ruled and reigned by how you feel. 
You are a, a container of the Holy Spirit. You are not a container of your feelings. Your feelings are actually external expressions of something that's happening within you. <laughs> your feelings are just ways that the Holy Spirit magnifies something that is disrupting the connection and relationship you were called to carry. And when you recognize that, you can then take those feelings and submit them back into the boundary lines God has built for them so they no longer bring you into damnation, but actually take you into glorification. So today you may feel one way, which is true and it's real and it's authentic and nobody can say otherwise, but it's not who you are and what you're created to be. You'd have to take that feeling and find where God's boundary lines have been built for it and then choose to submit that into that place so that those feelings can then glorify what God has created you to be, which is a container for the Holy Spirit. This is actually really good news because it means that your brokenness is not the defining point of your life. It's not actually a means to an end. It's an on-ramp to God bringing healing into your life so that you can overcome into something better than you're used to experiencing. Is this making sense? When you get this, when you understand that your purpose is to be a cup for the Holy Spirit to be carried in, then the things that you feel no longer are, 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 are no longer able to overwhelm you. But you have to submit them into the boundary lines. And once you do, God goes, okay, there was something broken in you, but now my strength and my healing has restored it. Just like David was restored from the Amalekite raiders has been restored in your life. And now this thing that once overwhelmed you is a tool in your tool belt to overwhelm the enemy. And not only are you overwhelming the enemy, but I've actually bound you back together. I've made you better than you were before because you've repented from what's not you. <laughs> you've repented from what's not you, and you've turned back into my grace, and my grace has strengthened you in a way you did not know I could before until you said yes again to me. It's the fear of God. So you can see it one of two ways. This is just who I am. Poor, pitiful me. Wham, wham, wham. Somebody get me a bottle. <laughs> or you can see it how God says it. This is an opportunity for you to overcome if you'll just be pure of heart. If you'll just stop faking and pretending and doing the religious American church dance of acting like you've got it all together. If you'll just let it go and step back into my flow of grace, I'll push you beyond where you could take yourself, but you've got to be pure of heart. You've got to be authentic in your desire to repent before me. Let's worship. Come on. I, I want to pray for you. I'm not going to placate the American. I'm not going to say a general prayer over everybody. If you want me to pray for you, if you want a leader to pray for you, you've got to come up and, t and get it. You've got to come up and get it. You've got to come up and ask somebody to pray for you. That doesn't seem fair. I don't care. <laughs> That's not nice. Jesus wasn't nice. He was kind. 
I'm being kind to you. I'm giving you the availability to get breakthrough in your life if you so want it. So we're going to worship. We're going to open the altar. Jesus, thank you for this word. We honor and bless you. If you've got to go home, you're free to go home. Nobody's going to judge and critique you. We love you. But if you want to receive prayer, just come up to the altar. We're going to pray for you to receive freedom from whatever is keeping you in bondage. In Jesus' name.